Hey guys, before we jump into today's interview, just want to give you a quick heads up that my conversation with Chris today is a little bit heavier than the conversations that we normally have on this show. There's nothing explicit or anything like that, but it's just heavy and it's emotionally heavy. And so if you're listening with kids around, again, there's nothing explicit. There's no vulgarity or anything, you know, kind of topics that your kids wouldn't be able to listen to. But just from an overall perspective, the conversation is kind of emotionally intense. And so it might not be the best episode to listen to if your kids are around. That being said, I'm really excited about the interview because it's powerful. And I do think it's going to point you to Jesus and just help you lead your family well as you listen to Chris's story. Before we jump into that, though, I do want to thank my friends over at Crossway for sponsoring today's episode. The Bible is a big book about a great God. From beginning to end, each page tells about the God who created the world, who acted in history, and who continues to act in the present. In the biggest story Bible storybook, Pastor Kevin DeYoung retells this grand story for children ages 6-12 through 12 through 104 short chapters. Beginning in Genesis and ending with Revelation, DeYoung provides engaging retellings of various Bible stories, explaining how they fit into the overarching storyline. Each reading is coupled with beautiful illustrations by award-winning artist Don Clark, and they conclude with a reflective prayer. This is perfect for bedtime stories or to read together as a family. Both children and you as a dad alike will experience the captivating story of the Bible in an easy-to-understand and compelling way. You can pick up a copy of The Biggest Story Bible Storybook wherever books are sold, or you can visit crossway.org forward slash plus to find out how you can get 30% off. Again, you can pick up a copy of The Biggest Story Bible Storybook wherever books are sold, or go to crossway.org forward slash plus to find out how you can get 30% off today. Chris, I'm, I'm really grateful, man, that you took the time to hang out with me today. Dude, I, I heard your story in like from a mutual friend of ours, and I was actually supposed to meet with him one day. And he said, hey, man, something came up with some a team member at our church. So I'm going to have to postpone our meeting. And I ended up reconnecting with him and got just a short version of your story. And immediately my heart just broke as hundreds, if not thousands of people who heard your story felt the same. And then I just started kind of following you and your story from afar. It was just like, man, this guy is, um, he's just a, you're a young dad and, and uh, trying to figure out what it looks like to lead your family well. And now in the midst of some really painful stuff. And so I just want to one hear your story, if you're comfortable sharing your story with our guys, and then we'll just kind of like talk about how you're processing all of that and what it looks like to, to continue to lead your family well in the midst of all of this. So I'll just kind of step out of the way and, and let you share your story, man. Yeah. So my wife and I, we had uh, five kids. She's a warrior. She was kind of entrepreneurial spirit. And we always knew we wanted to have five at some point. And then we had our fifth girl was named Finley. We got three boys and two girls. Our fifth was named Finley. She was born March 24th of 2021. Really felt like our family was complete. Like we had done it. We'd kind of arrived and now it was just time to build on that foundation and knew that we were going to put in a few years of just like, yeah, really tired and exhausted. And then at the other side of it, knowing that we were going to be raised these kids, raise them in the Lord, raise them to be productive members of society, all that stuff. And then like, three days after she gave birth, she had this pain in her back and we didn't think much of it. Like she gave birth upstairs in my house, like right here. And labor was like 55 minutes long. We had a midwife at our house, like, or else we wouldn't have made it to the hospital anyway. But so I'm like, well, you pushed the baby out pretty quick, you know, like maybe it's like a back spasm or some pulled muscle. And it just kept 
getting worse until it was so she was having a hard time sleeping. Ended up calling my buddy who works at a hospital. And he said, Hey, 99% chance it's a back strain due to the positioning, whatever. But there's a 1% chance it's got some symptoms called a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot on the lungs. 25% of everyone with pulmonary embolism, the first time they know that they have it is they're just dead because the embolism passes from their lungs to their heart. And then it just catastrophic heart failure is the first thing that they ever realized. So she had been following someone unbeknownst to me on Instagram who died of a pulmonary embolism while giving birth to their fifth kid. So it was like, all this was really fresh in her mind. Mm-hmm. Then we went to the hospital and she was pretty nervous. And we got there and the guy just kind of said in passing, maybe even a little bit tongue in cheek, like, Hey, I'm glad you guys came today. It is, it's a pulmonary embolism and you might not have had much longer if you hadn't come. And, and I, I think he was trying to say it in a way that was winsome and optimistic, you know, like, Hey, cool. You guys did it. You made it. But that was kind of so scary for her that it it kind of sent her into a little bit of like a mental tailspin. And and my wife had never struggled with anxiety, depression, any correlated disorder, anything like that. And then we went home that night after she got started on some blood thinners. She's really naturopathic. So she got on like the, she had to take a shot twice a day because she didn't want to take the certain blood thinner so she could still breastfeed and stuff. And so she had a little bit of anxiety about getting shots and everything, but then we went to bed And then at like two in the morning, she woke up and was just, just completely convinced she was going to die. So she woke me up and she said, Hey, she's like, I'm not going to make it through the night. She felt her heart was fluttering. And so she felt like the embolism had passed. And so she said goodbye to me. She wanted to wake up the kids and say goodbye to them. And I just said, baby, this isn't, this is not happening tonight. You know, like this is not really what's sorry. Just let me call, let me call the doctor. Let me call the emergency hotline. Let me call an ambulance. Let me call someone. Yeah. That was abnormal behavior for her to like kind of be in a, in a panic like that. A thousand percent. Okay. Yeah. This is like a college softball national champion, got married when she was 19, had a baby nine months later and has had five kids in seven years. So she doesn't really panic. She doesn't yeah. really get concerned about stuff. And probably her attitude towards mental health disorders prior to this would kind of be like, Hey, you should just, you know, try a little bit harder, work a little bit more because mm. we just, just, she just didn't understand it. Until so she kind of found herself in the middle of it. And then she was fine that night. We went back to the hospital the next day. They said she's experienced some cardiac tissue death just from it losing oxygenated blood while the embolism was holding it back. They said it, but other than it feeling a little bit funny, like you've got nothing to worry about. We did a full on EKG and all those other things. Angiogram, I think is the word that they used for it, but to take pictures of her heart and like listen to it and everything, she was fine but something just had already clicked and she started to associate sleep with that panic and that fear and maybe even Mm. death. Mm. So she just stopped sleeping. And when I say stop sleeping, I don't mean she had a hard time. I mean, she just stopped completely. And so after one night of that, she woke me up again at midnight. She's like, I can't sleep. It's kind of weird. And so I stayed up with her for the rest of the night. And, you know, this car started to kind of snowball where you know this, if you get a couple nights of bad sleep or no sleep, it can get pretty bad. And um, you start Googling, like, what are people like after not sleeping for five days? And as the numbers get higher, the articles get less and less, you know, after Mm -hmm. 24 hours of sleep, it's, there's a lot of weird stuff, but after four or five days, there's just no longer any more articles written on it because it's just so rare. And after night four of no sleeping every day, we would go back to the ER and they would give us like they would pull back the curtains, like the next biggest drug to give her, you know, like, Mm. Oh, and behind this curtain, we've got, you know, so night one was like Ambien night two was like Ambien and Benadryl and 
Ativan, you know, this like mm-hmm. anti-anxiety mist, but they just kept going back and nothing was working. Her power, her brain power was too strong. It just wasn't, it wasn't letting her sleep. So I don't remember if it was day three or day four, she woke up in the night and she said, I started having, she told me that she started having like suicidal ideation. And and I remember thinking to myself, like, what are you talking about? And I thought this woman just wants to sleep and she's now conflated sleep with death. And so she, someone just got to get her to sleep and then we're going to be fine. And so go back to the hospital, like, please, we'll like someone put her to sleep, but can you like put a needle in her arm and like, let her like, you know, like, how do you make people go to sleep for surgery? Like do that, do something. So that carried on for 10 days. So 10 days of no sleep. Day seven, we put her in a behavioral health unit down in San Diego and I went and visited her every day. She got the same thing for lunch. We ate lunch together. That was my visiting hours. And then I went back home and just thought, took them three days in there till they finally gave her a dose intense enough that she got a few hours of sleep. And, but then again, every night was like hit or miss after that. And so she did about a week in there and then came back home and she did a little bit of therapy and stuff. And for a moment, we thought she was getting better. I was teaching up at Hume Lake then. And what they kind of diagnosed her with was like PTSD because your brain just can't go through that kind of trauma and make it out. Okay. You can't not sleep for 10 days and then your brain be okay. You can rewire synapses and your neural pathways get all screwed up. And so kind of after that 10 days, no sleep, I never got my wife back about who Mm -hmm. she was. And then she did this brainwave optimization thing and they kind of tested her trauma line in her brain and a normal person like you are, or you or me, depending on what we've been through, we'll have a trauma number of about two or three, a soldier returning from war might have like a 21 or 22. She registered at a 64. Oh my so it was just kind of off the charts. They didn't really know what to do with it. So they, they started her on these different therapies and her, her line was coming down. We thought it was trending in a good direction. Then we went up to Hume Lake and my son just became unconscious one day. He was walking and then just fell over like he was dead and no response. And then the bottle of medicine that she was using to go to sleep every night was empty. And so all we could think is I was teaching, right. I was doing the gospel message at camp Jeez. and I got pulled off stage to the idea of your son is not responsive. And, oh, and Paige is now, I watch her go back into her same trauma. And the guy literally told us like, if your kid took this medicine, we're two hours away from the nearest hospital. Like he's just, we'll do everything we can, but he's not going to make it. Like if he took that medicine that, and it's already has its onsetting effects, like he's not going to, he won't make it. So he said, fall behind me in your van behind the ambulance. And he goes, if we pull over, then that means we're trying to resuscitate your kid. And um, so like, you just start down the hill and I'm just praying every corner, like every time he put on his brakes to go down the corner, I'm like, please don't stop. Please don't stop. Cause I know what that means. Got all the way down into Reedley. He ends up getting diagnosed after tests and tests and tests with something called acute onset cerebralitis, which is a weird autoimmune response to an onset of a disease where your body basically goes limp and becomes paralyzed for two to three days. It normally wears off within a week completely, but I mean, no one knew what it was until we went to one random hospital in Bakersfield and the lady had just had her own daughter diagnosed with the same thing. So she wow. was able to spot it right away, which is like such a cool God thing. And so, but my wife went back then. So where she had been healing and, and stuff she went back worse than it ever was. So she went back to the same testing place the next week and she registered a 75 rather than a 64. And it was just trending that direction. And then she just started talking hopelessly at that point. Schizophrenia had kind of set in. So she wasn't connected to reality. Most of the time I had to start sleeping in a room with all five of my kids. I started right after she got home from the behavioral health unit. 
thinking that I kind of needed to protect them. Cause when you don't sleep enough and your brain gets rewired, like you don't really know what's going to happen. So to protect them and to protect her. And so, yeah, we, we're just going to keep doing therapy and doing stuff like that. One day she was sitting next to me up on our balcony and she just jumped off of it. And just randomly, I'd, we were in a normal conversation. And then again, she can go in and out of what's normal so quickly. And fortunately she was fine at that point, but my kids saw it. She had landed close to my brand new daughter, which was on the floor down below. And that's when I knew like, we got to do something more dramatic. And I started Googling what's the best PTSD mental health co-occurring disorder place on planet earth. And it was kind of like the parable of the treasure in the field in scripture is like, once you know, I'll sell everything I have, I just got to get my wife back somehow. And so I did signed her up for this place in Tucson. It's supposed to be, it was supposed to be like the best kind of behavioral health unit for PTSD and co-occurring disorders that you could possibly imagine. And so we called them, asked like, Hey, this is what's going on. She's kind of actively suicidal now. Like even when we're driving there, she tried to jump out of the car on the oh way. And I had to kind of grab her and pull her back in. And, and it just wasn't her. It was like living with a different human being. And she didn't talk the same. She didn't, she would go to the store and buy like 11 toothbrushes and you didn't really understand why. And so it really felt like I had, I was kind of like her doctor in the last few months where I was, I, I went everywhere with her. We never left each other's side. And so she went to that facility and she was able to convince them to let her out of like the 24 seven monitoring into residential. And then 24 hours later, they found her, she had killed herself in her room and uh, her roommates found her. She was supposed to go to breakfast. She seemed fine at that point. And then she ended up taking her life between the hours of their check-ins. And so they tried to get the, the sheriffs there and everything, tried to resuscitate her, but it was just too late. So Jeez. that's July 31st of, of last year. And so, yeah, they called me and it's from Tucson. So I figured this was my daily check-in with her the day before I had talked to her about going to Costco with my kids by myself and just the spectacle of what that was to have five kids and a dad walking through Costco hallways. And I was kind of proud of myself, you know, like these are things that she could do in her sleep that I, it felt so left-handed for me to do it that, but I was trying to make her proud of me, you know, like, Hey, I'm, I want to give her assurance that I know you're getting healthy and you're, you're a hero for doing this. And cause she didn't want to go obviously to start with the Cause she had to be away from us for 30 days. And, and then the next morning they just called and said, you know, Mr. Hilkin, you're this morning, your wife attempted suicide. And so I kind of paused and I'm like, what does that mean? You know, did she take one too many pills and now she's in the infirmary? Like, what do you mean? And, but they, then she said, and your wife was successful in her attempt. And I just remember thinking to myself, first of all, like, what a weird way of telling me yeah. that. And secondly, like, you're just, you know, I just, I felt like I, I, I felt my knee like collapse <sighs> and just, you just start to, you know, and I think probably part of the way that God built me or maybe built men in general is like my brain went right to those kids and right to like, what does, you know, life look like? And it, it didn't even seem like it was the time to mourn like me missing page. It just felt like I had to go into like military mode. Like, like, what am, how am I going to tell my kids? Like, how do you sit your kids down and have that conversation? And then knowing I had to call like her dad, you know, like who gave her away at the altar to me. And now I got to call back and say what happened. And like, I just feel like my whole world kind of like collapsed on itself. And so that was just the beginning of like months and months and months to this day of just, of just like in and out of grief and waves of pain and confusion and, you know, depression, anxiety, what's next? How do we do what we do? And Fortunately, I've been in a, an amazing community of faith here that's been with me through everything. 
but that's kind of the navigation now on a daily basis is being a single dad of five kids in the middle of a, a grief pattern and mourning process with them and answering questions from little ones who partially still don't understand what the heck is going on. And the younger ones, my oldest one's seven, so he can process enough to know mommy's not coming home. And mm. my daughter Harper is five. And so she can get it to some extent, but then the younger ones, you know, will regularly ask when she's coming back or when can we go see her or it's just a world. It's, it's a fraternity. You never really want to find yourself in, but then kind of looking at it and going like, you know, God, you give and take away and, what the enemy intended for evil, you intended for good. And so like, it's not if you're good, it's that I know that you're good, but just help me understand what you want this to look like. And what do you want me to do? Like, what does life look like now? And so I went from being like a, yeah, I'm teaching every weekend to thousands and thousands of people on a big stage and talking about the idea of suffering and the theology of suffering and the the theory of what it means to be in it. And then to find myself just absolutely steeped in the deepest pain imaginable has been both yeah, deeply painful at times, humiliating, but also refining at the same time. So that's just kind of my journey as it's been for the last year up until, up until today, where we celebrate my daughter's one year birthday in three days. So it's been kind of one year since everything kind of kick-started. So yeah, that's where man. I am. My heart's just ripped out of my chest, man. Jeez. How did you tell the kids, bro? Something in my head told me you don't want to tell them this twice. And so I wrestled immediately with, do I tell them what happened to her? Or do I just say that she's not coming back? And I don't know why, maybe this was the wrong move, but I just, I really felt like, I wanted to establish credibility with them and tell them the hard things, let them ask those questions while they were in a safe environment. And, and out of like just an absolute sovereign appointment, my parents were here in down and they live in Bakersfield. So they live four hours away from here, but they were returning something for me that they had borrowed and they were on their way in town from something else. So they were here that morning. And so my brother was and his, and my sister and I were here this morning because they were over stopping by to see my parents and so I got to walk down into a room full of family rather than just me. Like, I just couldn't imagine walking down there with me and the kids. And so I first sent them upstairs and I told my parents and I just, I couldn't say your name. I just said, you know, my dad stopped what he was doing and looked up at me and he just said, Christopher, what, what, wait, what? And I said, I said, she's dead. And they said, what do you mean? I said, Paige is gone. Paige is dead. And everyone just collapsed just in like a, puddle of themselves. And, and I started crying and, but I just said like, Hey, this is the most unfair request, but this is already, even though they don't know, it's going to be the worst day of these kids' lives. And I got to tell them. And if they walk in and their whole support system is inconsolably yelling and screaming, I don't know that they ever get that out of their head. And so I'm asking you guys just to compartmentalize as much as you can. Let me tell them and let's be there for them. And then there's going to be a lot of time today for us to go and to be with each other and to mourn and to cry and to weep and to wail. We kind of took five minutes and then I brought him down and I just said, Hey, uh, my dad had cancer stage four cancer a couple of years back. And so we talked a lot. We prayed a lot then about my dad's cancer. And I said, you know, sometimes cancer can make the body do things that the body doesn't want to do. It can make it convulse the body. The sicknesses can make the body 
heart stop. It can make, it can force the body to do things because sicknesses can do that because of the sin in this world. There's these gross things called diseases. And sometimes they set in on people and then they make them do things they don't want to do, or they hurt them in ways that they don't, that, that the people don't want them to. And they said like, remember where Papa had cancer, you know, in his neck. And now he's got a big scar there from where everything happened. I said, you can get diseases of the brain too. And your mom had a disease in her brain. And just like a disease in your body can take your life away. So can a disease of the brain. And, and the funny thing about a disease in the brain is it can tell your brain to actually take your own life. It can, your brain in really, really rare circumstances. And mommy, unfortunately had this disease where your brain tells you to kill yourself. And guys, I just need to tell you, that's what happened to mommy. Mommy died this morning and we are here for you and we love you so much. And I know I told you mommy would be in there for 30 days and we would see her again. And, and that was our intent, but that sickness got a hold of mommy's brain and now mommy's mommy passed away. So she's just not, we're not going to ever see her again, but we're going to pray right now. And we're going to talk through this and we're going to answer any questions and you're the people who love you and support you are going to be here for everything. And I just want you guys to know that as you start asking questions and, and as we start mourning and understanding what it means to live life without mommy. And, and so, you know, my oldest just lost it and he just comes, you know, crawling in my arms. And then Harper is my five-year-old daughter and she, you just watched her wheels spinning and probably didn't understand the gravity of it fully, but then just kind of taking a clue from her brother did the same thing. And my son Brady didn't get it, but he just now knew everyone was crying. And, and now it's, I think it was just kind of fear for him. And, and then Leo he's my, uh, at the time he was one, just no clue what's going on other yeah, than everyone started acting weird. And then yeah. obviously Finley was just brand new. So yeah. yeah, I, whatever it was, I, I didn't want to tell him that she passed away and then Peyton asked me, two months later, what happened and then go through that process again. And I knew I had family there and, and I was like, I'm just, I'd rather just do it all at once. And then and it's almost like when you talk about kids that are adopted, it seems like now kind of the, sometimes the working model, if you will, is to let them know they're adopted from day one and have like an annual gotcha day where you were adopted into the family rather than waiting for that big crescendo moment when they're 13 to tell them or to never tell them at all. So that rang in my head and I said, I'm just going to do this right now. And, and it's actually ended up working out really well because then we can reference it. And then through the memorial and everything, I heard people talking about it all the time yeah. and they never had to ask that question. So that's kind of how I, I explained it to them. And first, dude, thank you for being vulnerable enough to revisit that. It's so fresh. Like it's, yeah. it's still so fresh. Oddly enough, man, my three-year-old was playing with her older sister just two days ago. And they're just little girls and they, but they were kind of rustling around in a very light way. But my, my three-year-old just went completely unconscious. She was out for several minutes. We called 911. We're in just pure panic. No and, and we were like, you know, just all the, you know, this, but all that experience of just like, what the heck is happening? And we still don't know what happened other than the paramedics got there. She eventually came awake and kind of got her wits back, but we don't know. They don't know what happened. We don't know what happened. And she seems totally fine now. We're just like, was that, did God just like miraculously save her from something? Or like, what do we need to keep? Anyway, we're in the thick of that. I, the reason I say all of that is because for the last two nights, I'm like, I can't sleep. I keep yeah. repicturing that. And I was telling my buddy who's in the counseling program right now, he's going to school to become a counselor in San Diego, actually. 
I was just telling him, I'm like, I know a lot of people go through a lot of hard stuff, but I feel like this kind of micro PTSD, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm replaying all this. I say all of that, man, to just like, you've experienced a lot of trauma in a really short amount of time, obviously huge with your wife and her taking her own life. And then even just, even if you set that aside with what happened with your son, like major trauma in a short amount of time, like, I guess that was a really long winded way of saying, how are you doing like today? Like, how are you just like brother to brother? How are you doing, man? I would say like, maybe the word is triage Mm -hmm. in my brain where it seems as though the answer to that question is I'm doing fine. There's a new normal. If your scale used to go from zero to a hundred and your best day was a hundred, your worst day would be like a 60, you know, on any typical day. Mm -hmm. And I feel like day one is like my scale only ever went to 30. So where I was, when I was at my best two days after, I was still half as good as my worst day I'd ever lived previously. Mm -hmm. And it seems like every month or so, it goes up a few percentage points at this point. So if I'm at like a 65 or 66 today, and I'm doing, that's what I'm saying, I'm doing fine, but I'm doing, I'm doing pre-page terrible, but I'm doing new normal okay. Yeah. It's just triage. I mean, it's been, it just feels like go mode. It feels like there's going to be a, it seems like there's going to be a season to kind of slow down and, and to do all that stuff. But right now it just seems like maybe part of the therapeutic nature of it is you just jump from thing to thing and, and getting to be there for the kids and everything has been wonderful. And, you know, like last night, my son Brady crawls into my bed and like nine o'clock and I just hold him for like an hour and a half and we talk and I kept him up way too late. Right. (laughs) But just realizing you kind of have to play both roles now. And I already felt anxiety before she passed about having to giving kids enough attention and that, and now it's just multiplied times five Mm. because now you feel the sole weight of that responsibility. So at the same time, I resigned from my old job at North coast church and just kind of figure out what God has next for me in that. So that probably creates a little bit more of that anxiety, but it just felt like the right move for me and my family at this time. But I've got such a cool support system that I would say it feels like I'm I'm sick in a really really great state of the art hospital. You know what I mean? I've, I've got so yeah. many different things that are so it's the state of being sucks. Yeah, and I still miss her every day. And then you know I, I know you know like being a dad you and a homeschooling dad. I'm trying to like figure out how yeah. to keep everything all the plates spinning, and that can get really frustrating sometimes. But yeah. I couldn't imagine anyone going through this without Jesus. Yeah. I couldn't imagine anyone going through this without a good faith community. And I couldn't imagine anyone going through this that didn't have a good connection with their family who has stepped in so big for me and, and been there through everything. So I feel like almost like sovereignly God has constructed my life in such a way that he knew this fallout was going to happen and I was able to get caught. Mm. And so in the middle of it, I couldn't ask for a better way of going through something that's just the sourest lemons that life has to offer. So mm. that's kind of my state, if that makes any sense. Sick, but not getting worse. Trending upwards and in a state-of-the-art medical facility. And I feel mm. like I've got all the resources at my disposal that I could possibly imagine. And so mm. I'm not complaining at all. Mm. I feel like people who experience loss, like just look at the world differently. There's almost that you realize how short life is and like finite things are, and you're able to zoom out things that maybe felt like a big deal. Aren't as big of a deal. If you like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I imagine there's sometimes you just kind of want to shake other people who are like, 
stressed out about certain things or like going through whatever. And you're just like, oh my gosh, like just zoom out a little bit, like, you know, zoom out for the dad. Who's just like, there's a lot of guys listening right now who this, they're just hearing your story and they're like, holy cow, dude, like this is, this guy's experienced a ton and his life is what feels like pretty normal. He's just going to work. He's listening to podcasts as he's driving or whatever. Like, I guess, what would you say to somebody who just maybe feels a kind of a sense of apathy or just like, they're just kind of going through the mundane, like with a sense of urgency that you now feel, what would you want to say to maybe encourage a dad in their perspective of life and fathering and husbanding and discipleship and all that right now? Yeah. That line is super fine, right? Between creating emergency in your heart, but then not living in guilt and shame, Mm. you know, surrounding it. I actually took to starting, I set an alarm on my phone. It's Monday through Sunday alarm every day. There's nine of them a day and they're all just different reminders to me as a dad. And so Mm. the first one is it's, it kicks off at seven 30 and it says, be present one day closer to your kids leaving. Mm. And and it's, it's just a reminder. The first thing that I do when I wake up that I was challenged by my mentor a while back and he said, what would you, if you could have all of the money in the world and the resources in the world and, and the best house you could possibly imagine. And this is before page passed and the best marriage imaginable, but your relationship with your kids for the rest of your life was faulty or broken or misaligned. Would you ever push that button? And I said, and I would never have that. And so he just said, I want you to understand the importance. It There's not a money amount someone could give you. There's not a time amount someone could give you. There's not a, there's not any kind of pleasure someone could ever give you that would undo the pain of you not being there for your kids and, and having some disconnected relationship with them. Mm. And so he said, every day when you wake up then and you engage with your kids, realize that that engagement is something that you wouldn't pay a billion dollars to get rid of. You wouldn't, you wouldn't pay all the resources in the world to get rid of. Why do you need to see it every day as that important to you? Cause when you're able to zoom back and someone asks you, it's, it's the same thing with like a marriage, you know, you see these people or even pastors sometimes who are building their church or building their organizations and they're doing it at the expense of their family. And then they lose their family and they don't care about the church anymore. Yeah. Because they just go, wait, hold on. And so for me, that's that's been a huge wake-up call. And, and it the goofy part about it is like I used to go to the office and it was the easiest thing I did all day. Hmm. Because at the office, I get standing ovations for what I do. I can do a halfway effort and still do it pretty well because it's my giftedness. And I don't have to really be engaged. I can sit in a meeting and be half there and it's totally fine. And knowing that with the giftedness and everything that I could go and do what I need to do at the time. And whether you're selling stuff or you're a, a doctor or you're a drywall or whatever it is, you know, that there's almost a rhythm and a hum to your life when you're at work and stuff. And then come home, it's like a disruption. You know, mm-hmm. their kids can be disrespectful and your wife can be short with you. And so the funny thing is, is, is because we're so consumeristic minded in America and because we're so built on what you do and your success in that, I think we just, we've lost the idea that, the hard things of life are when you're at home. And I think when it becomes hard, we just go like, man, something's wrong. But I love how one pastor put it. He said that the term sloth in scripture is best described as the failure to do the hard work that love requires. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that so much more in parenting than I do anywhere else. I know the hard work that love requires. I just don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And so my challenge to anyone would be if it feels like a discipline and if it feels difficult or whatever, like there's nothing in anyone's life ever 
that was satisfying, fulfilling, or worth your time. That wasn't difficult to do. Like you think about marathon runners, you think about the reason we clap for someone's 50 year wedding anniversary. It's because of the thousands of tumultuous, painful days and hard moments. And so it would just be from one dad who's going through it to another, do the hard work that love requires, cut yourself a break. For me, I had to set reminders. Now my reminders constantly kick me out of like, I'll be Googling something. My kids will be talking to me. And the last thing that I committed to doing, there's a great Ted talk on this, but I always say yes, whenever my kids want to play with me and I always lay on the ground whenever I'm doing something different. So if I'm around my kids, I'm laying on the ground because then I can be a a jungle gym to them. What I found is like when the kids want to engage, they don't do it on my schedule. You know, when they want to have a hard conversation about Paige or my wife, they don't do it on my schedule. They do it when I'm willing to just be with them. Hmm. And so for me, it's if I need to look something up on the internet, I do it on the ground because I know Leo's going to jump on my back and I know that Harper's (laughs) going to start playing with my toes. And I know that. And and it's in those moments that I find them going, Hey dad, what do you think about this? It's not when I go, Hey guys, we're going to have family time. Yeah. Almost like you catch them off guard. So for me, it's, it's just be more intentional with those things. And that would be mine. Chris, I'm so grateful, man. I really am that you, that you took the time to, I didn't know when to reach out. I wanted to reach out and hear your story, but I didn't know when would be a good time. And so I don't know if I picked a good time, but I'm, I'm grateful that you, you came on and you shared and you, uh, I think it's going to be really encouraging, impactful, and um, I think it's just going to point a lot of guys in the right direction, man. So thank you for doing this. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It was fun. Enjoy it. Hey, guys. I hope that interview was helpful for you and pointed you toward Jesus as you listened to Chris's really hard and really compelling story. One thing that he mentioned in the interview was how he has a good group of community around him that's supporting him through this hard time. He said, I didn't know how I would be able to go through this if I didn't have a good community. If you're looking for like-minded men that you can connect with, we would love to have you part of the Dad Tired community. You can do that by going to connect.dadtired.com or this September, we have our very first Dad Tired retreat where guys are going to get together face-to-face. We'd love to have you come be part of that. You can go to dadtired.com forward slash retreat. I love you guys. I'll see you next week. Thank you.